0: Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Karen Seibert about a recent article she wrote for Anesthesiology News. She discusses her perspectives on the future of the profession, of the specialty, and some important things to consider for physicians who hope to have a long and fruitful career. Always enjoy talking to Dr. Seibert. You're really gonna enjoy today's episode. Hello, and welcome to episode 76 of the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Karen Seibert. Dr. Seibert, you may recognize her name, was a past guest of this podcast in episode 47. She's the past president of the California Society of Anesthesiologists, as well as being an associate clinical professor and director of communications in the UCLA Department of Anesthesiology and Perioperative Medicine. Dr. Seibert, welcome. Pleased to be here. Uh, We're going to talk about a lot of exciting things that I think are really timely uh, especially as we're coming up on the end of the year, thinking about the future and expectations for ourselves and, and broadly for, for healthcare, for the specialty of anesthesia, for one's career. And I'm looking forward to understanding someone like you has a really unique perspective and have seen a lot of different uh, challenges faced by the specialty and by physicians over the years. And you've been a really passionate and articulate advocate. Uh, and we talked previously about the sort of overly simplistic approach that some uh, mainstream media publications have taken to addressing these questions. And uh, I'm curious, you know, in getting to know you a little bit and seeing the way you communicate, and now seeing that you are, it sounds like they created a post for you, the director of communications in your department. Um, What is it that that makes you so passionate about these things?
1: Well, my husband would say that Karen thinks everyone is entitled to her opinion. And he's, he's not wrong. (laughs) Um, I really only write about things that I care about. I don't just write a blog a week for the sake of publishing a blog a week. I write about issues that I think are important to medicine and to anesthesiology in particular, to patient care, to patient safety. Um, and I, I just write about stupidity <laughs> wherever it arises and it arises with shocking frequency. <laughs> so um, which is, it sounds sort of obnoxious, but really and truly, I think that medicine and patient care, it's an incredibly honorable profession. It has been since the dawn of time, um, and it matters, and what we do matters, and when we start to think that average is okay, and let's just use this protocol because that keeps us out of trouble, and because we're lazy, and we don't want to think about this particular patient, I, I can't I can't stand it. And I think I'll be disappointed in myself if I ever get to the point where I just say, Oh, who cares anyway, which I don't think is going to happen.
0: Yeah. 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 It reminds me of the the one article I think you cited in your article that we're going to talk about in a minute. The one that said maybe med school should be three years instead of four, because three years of training makes you less likely to question the assumptions in a given situation
1: that put me over the it came out what eight years ago or so i can't even remember but it was it was a while ago and i read that and i was really infuriated and still am and the fact that dr emmanuel is on the coat on president-elect biden's COVID task force made me a little crazy but maybe he's learned something since then who knows we can only hope
0: that's right uh well i'm not going to opine on that since it's outside of my expertise um (laughs) So your recent article, the one that captured my eye and the one that made me want to have you back on the show was entitled Practice Without Fear. And the idea is it's essentially like an address to younger uh, anesthesia residents, fellows, and younger attendings about what you think the future of the specialty may hold as far as unique challenges and ways to, uh, you know, perhaps like prepare in advance to to meet those challenges. Uh, I, I was intrigued by the sort of the the content of the title. I'm curious, do you perceive among your peers or among younger colleagues, a fear about the future of even something as fundamental as like job security as an anesthesiologist? And how does that manifest itself?
1: I don't think we've seen that until recently, until and having to do with COVID-19 and the pandemic. Because There are practices that have really been in financial trouble during the whole time in the spring when elective surgery was just not not happening. And I think that has sunk home to people. And it's also sunk home to them with the class of 20 in in the job market. The job market took a big dive and I don't know if it has recovered or when it will recover. I don't have that kind of crystal ball. Before that though, My concern was a little different. My concern was that residents didn't really understand the trouble that the specialty is in financially from the whole reimbursement concept. They just didn't think about it. They didn't get it. They kind of knew that anesthesiologists had historically made good money and they liked that aspect of it. And I've always written that, please don't go into this just because you think you're gonna make good money compared to being a pediatrician. That is not a good way to spend your career. Uh, When my son was um, in medical school and thinking what to go into, I told him exactly the same thing. Don't go into anesthesia because you think it's the family business. Since my husband and I are both (laughs) anesthesiologists, I said, go into what you love to do. Otherwise it's going to be a long and miserable career. So, um, but now I think it's even, it's worse and different at the same time, but it's still not a reason to be scared. If you go into this, for the money, you're doomed to disappointment. You should have gone into investment banking. This is not, this is not that job. (laughs) So, but you do need to be realistic about it. And it's hard for young physicians who have, in any field, who have scrimped and saved and have student loans, and then they finally get done with residency and they want a house and they want a nice car and they want all the things that they've waited so long for. And I'm not saying you can't have all the things, but you may not be able to have them all at once. And you really need to think about what you want because the, the times are are scary.
0: Yeah. What scares you most right now as you kind of look at the landscape? The government. <laughs> Great segue. Hands so down. let's, let's transition. Down. Yeah. So one of the challenges... And I, I learned this very early on, I remember from Dr. Mariano, who was a prior guest of the show, mm-hmm. and I know a colleague of yours oh, yeah. out there on the West Coast. Good friend. Him, him talking about anesthesia is one of the worst reimbursed, if not the worst mm-hmm. reimbursed specialties of all of the specialties as it relates to Medicare paying on a percentage of usual and customary rates. So that, is correct. that hasn't changed. Can you just take a minute and explain what that means?
1: Well, what that means fundamentally is that Medicare just sets its own payment rates. And we don't really have any ability to negotiate that uh, on a state level or on a group level or a health system level. It is what it is. So for a lot of specialties, Medicare rates are actually fairly close to universal. usual and customary third payer reimbursement rates. So in other words, if, you know, just to pick any random insurance company pays you X, um, Medicare may be 80 or 90% of X for some specialties. And so they don't regard Medicare rates as that much of a threat, but for anesthesiology and the reasons for this are long and complex and we don't nearly have enough time to go into them. But for anesthesiology, it's anywhere from 27 to 33%. So a lot of times for shorthand, you'll hear the ASA and other entities refer to this as our 33% problem because um, we can look forward to about 33% of what most third-party payers pay us um, as Medicare payment rates and Medicaid payment rates or Medi-Cal as it's called in California are even lower. So we used to do well enough from our other third party payers that this wasn't a problem. It only really started to rear its ugly head when the balance billing question started to come up. In other words, could we bill patients for what their insurance and what their Medicare didn't pay us? And historically we did some of that, but again, the reimbursements overall were good enough that we didn't really sweat those details. But when the balance billing controversy started, now what happened in New York was when the legislature decided to get involved in balance billing, they based it on um, an index that had much more to do with usual and customary payments. So that was fine. But when California decided to get involved with this, they started immediately looking at paying us Medicare rates for any contested balance billing issue. Well, that's a disaster for anesthesiology. CSA worked very, very hard with the legislature to get a a different rule passed so that it hasn't been as bad as we feared it would be, but it still hasn't been good because a lot of third party payers started to take advantage of it and try to negotiate us lower and lower and lower out of the, with the threat that if this came before the legislature, again, it would go to Medicare rates. So it, it's not a theoretical construct, but now you take today when we now have a newly elected Democratic president who is justifiably concerned about people without health care and people who are suffering tremendous economic hardship due to the loss of employment. And he's looking at something he did not endorse during the primaries, which is Medicare for all. He specifically did not endorse that, but now, now he's elected. So (laughs) remains to be seen what will happen. And he certainly has supported a public option based on Medicare rates, which again is a disaster for anesthesiology. And so this is not just idle talk. These are, these are real concerns.
0: So, just so I understand, if we move to a Medicare for All, I mean, I understand that Medicare, if it's between 27 and 33% of the usual and customary, that means we can only pay our bills if we have a decent payer mix of like not as much Medicare and more commercial. Mm-hmm. In the context of Medicare for All, just so I can understand, how, how would this play out? What does that mean?
1: It, it's entirely in the eye of the speaker. Uh, You know, different people seem to mean different things by it. And and I don't really know because most people who are on Medicare who can afford it have some kind of supplemental policy. So you hear different versions. For some people, Medicare for all is equivalent to universal health care, which means we do away with all the insurance companies and we just put everybody on government-run health care. And for other people, it literally is Medicare as a fail-safe for everybody and then you can buy more. So you don't know what it means unless you really ask the person who's talking about it to, to make their terms clear. And of course, there's, there's nothing politicians hate more than to be pinned down to specifics. <laughs> they, they want that's right. generalities <laughs> that are popular. So I don't know what it means. And we, none of us are going to know until it becomes a law that's being debated.
0: Yeah. Uh, one of the challenges that you mentioned in your article which we're going to link to here in the show notes it's appeared in a couple places i found it in anesthesiology today you told me it's going to be published in the upcoming annual uh csa annual publication as well um the practice the practice um sorry i'm saying this wrong scope of practice expansion uh, especially with crnas and obviously this gets like super political very quickly so again i'm gonna not get too political of myself about it, but I'm curious, what does it mean as far as preparing young physicians to try to, you know, build job security, develop skills to insulate themselves from that dynamic? And, and any other comments you kind of want to make on, on that? You know, I'm looking right now at the VA and how that plays into things. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that as well.
1: What I think about anesthesiology is that, first of all, it's the practice of medicine. It's not just pushing drugs in an IV. It's the whole um, art of diagnosis of knowing a great deal of medicine so that you understand all the medical problems that the patient has, all the medications they're on and everything. And so it is so much more than putting people to sleep and waking them up. It's, It's just more than that. Now, if you take somebody that has the basics of anesthesia and you give them a healthy payment a healthy patient and a simple operation can somebody with far less training than I have and my colleagues, can that person safely put that patient to sleep and wake them up? Almost certainly. Yes. With all the monitoring equipment we have and everything else, my, a lot of people say we've made it um, fatally easy to give anesthesia. We've built so many safeguards into it, but that just doesn't cover all the circumstances, all the sick patients, all the, the really scary operations and so forth. So inherently I think medicine is at its best when it's a team sport. I have to work with um, residents, fellows, nurse anesthetists, surgical techs, circulating nurses. And if all of us aren't working peaceably together and doing our jobs, things can f- fall apart at any one of a number of phases. The Political association of the nurse anesthetists, which is called the AANA, is just ferociously um, holding up the the goal of making nurse anesthetists completely independent of any physician um, oversight at all. And you know whether you're calling that supervision, oversight, direction, whatever. I'm I'm really not talking about that level of specificity because those obviously are largely payment terms rather than terms defining the, the work. But they really want independent practice so that they can bill for all the services and not have to not have to be involved with anesthesiologists at all. And that is a very politically extremist wing of that organization. And by far the vast number of nurse anesthetists that I've worked very, very happily and collegially with over the years really don't want that. They really wanna be able to call me when they're in trouble and have me come. And we'll together we'll get out of it, whatever it is. And that's to my, to my mind, the way it should work. Whereas um, I think solo anesthesia practice is a lot of fun. I do enjoy it when I get to just go into the room, put the patient to sleep myself. I don't have to talk to anybody. I don't have to teach the resident. Sometimes it feels kind of like a vacation day, even though I love my residents, but <laughs> Um, you know, it's sort of some days it's like watching your children in the kitchen with knives, but that's another, that's another story. But the fact is that when I do that, it's really not an efficient use of resources. You know, for me to be mixing up a gram of an antibiotic and inject it into the vein is not a physician level task. It's really not. You know, people with far less training than I have can do that safely and should be doing it safely, and I should be doing other things to be honest. And that's been one of the problems with anesthesiology is that people look at what we do and they go, well, anybody can do that. A nurse can do that without appreciating all the other things that, that go into it.
0: Is there anything that you think at the, the ASA, like the advocacy level, the sort of lobbying level that, that could or should be done differently or more constructively to help to reframe this discussion?
1: The fact is that advocacy is exactly that. It's just advocating for something. It's preaching for something. It's urging something. And it has zero clout behind it. And that's always going to be its fundamental limitation, which is why... Some physicians are joining unions, there have always been physician unions, but in the last few years, there has been more activity in that direction. And that's largely come from primary care physicians, hospitalists, that sort of thing, who are being pushed and pushed and pushed by corporate employers to work harder, to work faster without decent working conditions, with too much production pressure, with, with um, bad electronic health records that were literally ruining their lives. And some of them have started joining unions. Um, They've started, I mean, the United Steelworkers has a medical practice branch, which I didn't even know until recently, but unless you're willing to do something to force the hand of a corporate employer. And more and more physicians these days are employers, either of corporations or of academic health systems. I'm an employee. So um, unless you're willing to do something at the work slowdown or work stoppage level, you don't have any clout. And the more employers are just going to do things to maximize revenue, and they genuinely don't give a darn about the physicians. You start talking about burnout, and they advocate yoga and mindfulness.
0: Yeah, that, that's a whole nother podcast <laughs> episode. And so I'll just right. briefly interject. I was listening to a podcast today, uh, a guy by the name of Seth Godin, who's sort of like a business and marketing guru. And he had this episode called Pay the Writer, wh- which was about a guy who wrote, I think one of the Star Wars novels and some other sci-fi. And Disney was like just not paying him, basically it's something they had contractually agreed to. And his, his premise is, a little writer guy who sits in his house and writes on his computer and sends something up to corporate and hopes to get paid. Like he doesn't have a legal department to like go to the mattresses whenever corporate says we're not going to pay you. Come after us. And, and I think that medicine, especially like independent physician practice, suffers from the same problem, which is you need sufficient infrastructure to deal with the you know the the corporate shenanigans where they'll say rather than cutting you the check for what we owe you, we'll kick it to our legal department or we'll we'll do create an unreasonable prior authorization burden or we'll do what we're going to keep on cutting reimbursement until you can't keep your lights on anymore and more and more it's driving physicians into I mean there's obviously some pros and cons but as a I mean I'm an entrepreneur I'm kind of wired like this and I think for physicians the more autonomy they have decision making capacity for themselves their patients and their their practice the better off we're all going to be that's kind of my (laughs) MO and so as I see this trend continue I think that it's certainly uh a, a little bit of a I don't want to say a depressing headwind but it's a it's a situation that I think we need to It is. Yeah.
1: It is a depressing headwind. I think yeah. there's there's no question about it and and our personal standards of professionalism have always led us to just you know put our heads down and and just keep on going and because we have this patient right now that we need to take care of and we can't worry about the bigger issue of what the you know, what they're doing and, and so forth. And unless, you know, I personally have just taken a lot of care to structure my professional life in the way I wanted to, you know, to take care of the kinds of cases I wanted to. I never signed up to go to an ambulatory surgery center and, you know, put 14 patients to sleep a day. I, you know, I can't, I can't evaluate them. I can't take proper care of them. I just have refused to do that, but I've been lucky. You know, I've just had, I grew up in an era where we did have, I think, a little more choice. Whereas if you're in a private group, and it sells out to a corporation, all of a sudden, you don't have any clout. Once you've signed on that dotted line, you're done.
0: Or worse, you can say, like, maybe I'll sign on the dotted line, or else they're going to, like, blow up the contract and go to somebody else. And maybe it's literally, you know.
1: Uh yeah, They're not good choices. Yeah, A lot of times, they're not very good choices. And so I think sometimes that you know the corporate threat right now to almost any anesthesia group that's kicking up a fuss is that we'll just bring in nurse anesthetists and say bye-bye and they've done it they've done it and they're going to keep doing it and the question is what are we going to do about it and advocacy as much as i support advocacy and i've been to sacramento and i've been to washington and i've certainly done my share of it i always knew deep down it's always follow the money
0: i want to allude to uh an excerpt, I'm just going to read this briefly and hear your response to this in this article that you wrote. We need to do more to establish our value beyond simply putting patients to sleep and waking them up. Set yourself apart from mid-level practitioners or you will find find yourself classified as a quote-unquote provider, an equivalent pawn on the OR chessboard. Make your skill set unique and your services indispensable to your hospital or your group. Can you elaborate on that a little bit?
1: Yes, (laughs) I can. (laughs) I think that, um, as residents go through their training, they're so happy to just be able to put patients to sleep and wake them up again. And there are so many skills to master, and the the slicker you get and the smoother and the faster you feel good about that. And that feels like I have really, you know I'm really at my the top of my game, and that's just great. But the fact is, as I said, closer to the start, that you take a basic situation, a basic anesthetic, a reasonably healthy patient. There are lots of people who can do that just as well as you can. So now what, what are you going to do next? So a lot of people are doing fellowships and I think that's fine. The trouble is that your fellowship may train you for things beyond what your group needs you to do. And there's so many considerations that go into where people decide to practice, they may want to be in your family, they may want to, they don't want to go to Kansas, you know, they just want to, they want to live in the Bay Area, they want to live in New York, or they live want to live where they want to live. And so they end up making compromises in the jobs they take because of all those other personal and life factors. But let's say you do a fellowship in cardiac anesthesia, and you don't end up doing cardiac anesthesia from that group's point of view, unless you are really doing something else different, maybe you're helping run an echo service for the hospital, or maybe you're doing some work in the ICU part of the time, you're now still just another pawn on the OR chessboard. So you have got to look at your situation and at your skill set and find some way to make yourself unique. I don't think that people are going to become going to rise to leadership positions, for example, in academic anesthesia, if they don't have something special, they're going to need an MBA, or maybe they're going to need a PhD that enables them to get an NIH grant. But you've got to set yourself apart in some way, or you really are going to be literally just another FTE on the CEO's spreadsheet. That's it. So I just think that the people who are coming out need to think long and hard about that.
0: Is there anyone that you look at right now either a colleague of yours or someone maybe one of your trainees who you thought that person is really doing a great job at proactively building putting the tools in the toolbox to position themselves for a very robust a very robust career and what kinds of specific steps have they taken?
1: Well, I can think of several. I'm trying to trying to, to pick an, a specific example. I remember a resident who I thought was, was great and I didn't even know that much about him at the time, but um, he came to me and asked me to help him get an OB anesthesia fellowship. And I was delighted. I know people all over the country. So I was able to make some contacts and he ended up doing his fellowship at Brigham and women's and, um, and he's a, getting to be an increasingly well known uh, spokesperson for the field. His name is Dr. Cesar Padilla, and I think he's now at the Cleveland Clinic. But he came from a very disadvantaged um, Latino background in, in a very poor section of Oakland, California. And so he's using both his communication skill set and his OB anesthesia skill set to deal simultaneously with problems of underrepresentation of people in color in the field, and maternal mortality, which is higher, and, you know, so many things. And I'm just so proud of him um, for all the work he's doing in all these respects. There are other residents who have MBAs and are interested in delivery of care. They're interested in OR management. On the other hand, I know people with MBAs who've ended up in positions where they're the hospital is just not interested in taking advantage of their MBA. They, they already think they know what they're doing as well as they need to know how to do it. Thank you. You just go in this room and put that patient to sleep. And that's the risk that you run if you really don't carefully strategize your, your position um, and the, the health system or the corporation or whatever that you're joining. What are their needs? Do they actually need you? or are they just hiring you for some other reason? Cause they heard you were a smart person and you were a good anesthesiologist. So you really do have to, you have to watch what you're, you're going for and be careful. When I was in private practice, it didn't matter in private practice, what leadership skills I had or what, you know, advocacy skills or what writing background or anything. They just wanted me to go in those rooms and put that patient to sleep. And if I, by the way, if I wanted to go to Sacramento to a meeting, it was gonna be on my own time and on my
0: own dollar. Is If you were, I don't know, you were at a conference and you you just happened to like bump into a, a hospital executive who maybe was more, I, I'm sure, you know, it varies widely. I know that some are, are probably great advocates for physician leadership, while others are less interested in having constructive dialogue. But if you bumped into someone who is receptive uh, and, and you wanted to have a conversation, how, what types of specific things, what would you encourage them to do? to be able to bolster physician leadership, to be able to add physician perspective in a way that's going to do all the things that healthcare systems want, better patient outcomes, decrease cost, keep all the you know staff well cared for and, and manage cost?
1: That's an impossible question. The only, the only hospital leaders who are interested in physician leadership are physicians. The others don't think they need us. They listen politely sometimes to what we have to say and ignore it the rest of the time. They are beholden to stockholders and their own bosses and not to the healthcare staff, physicians, nurses, anybody, unless they're unionized. If the nurses or the nurse anesthetists or anybody else are unionized, then they pay attention to them, which puts physicians always at the bottom of that list, always. Sorry.
0: <laughs> no, that's, yeah, that, that makes sense. You, you had some crystal ball type of predictions that I thought were really interesting about the future of the specialty, the future of the physician experience. I'll just briefly mention them and then we can maybe zoom in on the one of these that's like the highest conviction prediction of yours. <clears throat> Number one, the training of anesthesiologists will break the mold of today's iron-fisted control by the ACGME, Resident Review Committee, ABA, etc. Number two, you'll never hear the question, but how will we get paid for this? And number three, technology will redefine the delivery of care. Can you maybe pick your favorite one of those and just talk about how you see the field evolving?
1: I know your podcast is about the money. And so we can talk sort of first about the money and getting reimbursed for services has always been the holy grail of how we got paid. And a lot of that is tied to what are called the Medicare conditions of participation. You have to be there or immediately available for induction. You have to be there at critical parts of the case. You have to be there at emergence. And that has really defined artificial ratios. Um, One to four nurse anesthetist supervision, one to four anesthesiologist assistant supervision, and one to two resident supervision. And you know, there's just, that's just so artificial and it has nothing to do with safety. It has nothing to do with quality of care. There are days when one to four is way too many nurse anesthetists to supervise, depending on what the case acuity is like. And then there are days when You know, you know, you could easily keep an eye on what was going in six or eight procedure rooms doing colonoscopies, but you're not going to get paid if you do that. This is, this is, these are artificial constraints. We should be able to figure out how to deliver care. You know, in some ways, think about it, it makes no sense for a GI doc to be able to supervise sedation delivered for a colonoscopy by an RN, but we can't. For us to supervise anybody, it has to be a nurse anesthetist or an AA who are far more expensive than a regular RN. I mean, there are just stupid things built into this system and we've just got to blow blow that up if we're going to deliver care both safely and with cost efficiency. So, you know, I don't know how that's gonna happen. This stuff is so baked into the fabric of the way staffing is set up, the way Medicare pays, I don't even know how you go about blowing it up, but it just doesn't make sense anymore. There's no reason why an ICU patient can come down monitored by their ICU nurse for a CT scan. But for the simplest OR procedure, it has to transfer to a fully qualified anesthesia team. Why couldn't an anesthesiologist also do the same oversight for that intensive care nurse that they were doing upstairs? You know, this stuff is really artificial. And so in my best case scenario, we do find a way to blow that up and put the right personnel for the task rather than the right personnel to to get paid, which is where we are now. And then the second thing has to do with training. Um, Right now, there's this assumption that when a person finishes an anesthesia residency, they can be a jack of all trades the field is getting complicated enough that that's just silly. You know, you don't want somebody doing anesthesia for your lung surgery after they've done whatever minimum number of procedures that is during residency. That's just not enough. And yeah, they get experienced fast in the real world. But still, I think there should be, I think you should pick your major earlier is what I, is, is, is the, is the bottom line. And if you're somebody that already has an MBA and you want to, and you know, you want to go into more of a management track or, a, uh, you know, healthcare delivery on the public health end of things track, there's no reason for me to teach you how to do this complicated anesthetic for this thoracic case that you're never going to see again, let alone do. It's a waste of both of our time, Yeah. You know? <laughs> to be blunt. And, you know, I hated pediatrics. There was no reason for me to ever do a pediatric heart. It was the last thing in the world I ever wanted to do. I knew I was never going to touch it again. Like one of the people who wants to do it, do that case. But beyond that, let's face it, the American board of medical specialties, and that includes the ABA, they are out to perpetuate their own success, just like the joint commission is. And I think there's no truer, uh, demonstration of that than the maintenance of certification business. This is a huge cash cow for all the medical boards. And I have just I'm lucky enough to be old enough that I was able to just refuse to do it. I just said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm board certified for life. Thank you very much. And I will take care of my own continuing medical education, which I have done, I think, quite successfully. Um, but somehow now physicians have been infantilized by the boards. Oh no, we can't possibly trust you to read articles or go to class, go to courses, or you know, take classes in the latest block. We can't trust you. You have to be supervised and we have to tell you what to do um, to make sure that you continue to maintain your qualifications. And I find that so deeply resentful. And then when you actually, again, it's follow the money look into how badly the internal medicine board and I mean I think, I think the ABA is at least honest. I think some of the other boards, it 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 really borders on craft and corruption. I mean they have bought condos, they have sent their their executives on junkets, you know, all over the world. It's it's mind-bending when you really when you really do look into it. And and so I think that the more physicians allow themselves to be treated like children who are going to misbehave at the first opportunity, then the more people are going to treat us that way.
0: It's a lot like turning an aircraft carrier and and a lot of areas that need reform all at the same time. And and to go back to one point that you mentioned before we wrap it up, um, you know, the idea of following the money and frequently like the insurance methodology creates a practice model that's, it should exactly. be the other way around. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious to see, and I'm, if you, I'm interested, if you have any thoughts on this, I think there's opportunities for like full vertical integration that exists in just a couple places. Um, but I'm looking at kind of the stuff that Amazon's doing right now and like the pharmacy space. And I think somebody like an Amazon could say, you know what, we're going to create a fully internal vertegrated vertically integrated health system because we're tired of, I don't know what they do for their like employee health benefits. I'm sure obviously they're a great negotiator because they have huge buying power, but maybe they do something like, you know, they build their own ecosystem and they can, I mean, it's super progressive obviously, but they, they do it the other way around. Instead of having the reimbursement dictate the two to one or the four to one oversight, we have it say like, how do we optimize for patient outcomes? And then figure out how to make the economics work.
1: I think the Mayo Clinic system and the Kaiser system Mm -hmm, probably have the best opportunity. And I know some of that is happening. And that is, that is encouraging, but that, you know, we, we need to, getting away from fee for service payment has terrible downside potential for us. If we don't, if we don't get a seat at the table and in figuring out how that happens, but in a sense, it's the only way to get rid of these artificial constraints. It really is. Um, It's figuring out how to do the work the right way with the right people at the right time. So that's being talked about at least, which is further than we ever got before. But still, while we are still largely in a fee-for-service world with the third party payers and Medicare and Medicaid, um, it's it's not gonna happen. So, and I don't know how, I don't know how we get away from that except to start setting up healthcare systems like you're talking about. But then I don't know who pays them. Are they not going to file for Medicare reimbursement? Because if they're going to file for any Medicare reimbursement,
0: then they're stuck with the then, same problem.
1: And they're stuck with the same problem. Yeah. So I'll be interested <laughs> to see to see how that works out. But um, But this is where some of the employers that are looking the furthest ahead with their own internal corporation healthcare plans are saying we're going to send our people to where they do a hip the best and the cheapest and it's worth the plane fare yeah and so if that if that's the if that's the the payer then they get to call those shots so in some ways you know those are those are encouraging developments too but what i what i hate to see I mean, we've talked a lot about, you know, being afraid and there are things to be afraid of, but I don't know, people who speak out, it's worth it. It's worth it to do it now, not being stupid about it, but if nobody makes noise, nothing ever happens. And I remember you asking me once, how come I wasn't just, wasn't afraid to say things? Well, you know, you gotta, you gotta get to the point in life where, you know, you're not worried about getting your feelings hurt. <laughs> one of my, one of my residents said to me not long, he said, I started reading your blog. And I said, okay. And, and, and he said, you know, not everybody agrees with you. <laughs> I was like, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> that is correct. And I, I still sleep fine. You're not going to please everybody. And I don't write to please everybody.
0: Last question, then we'll wrap it up. And I thank you for your time, Dr. Seibert. Um, as you look across the landscape of all the things we've talked about uh, and things we haven't even gotten to, what gives you the greatest hope or optimism about the future of medicine, about the future of anesthesia, about the future of the next wave of physicians and the, the future of patient care?
1: I think... Their hearts are still in the right place. I think for the most part, people are going into medicine for the right reasons. I was tremendously encouraged in that same article that you referred to the practice without fear. I, I was taught, I talked for a, a while in there about just being kind, you know, doing the kind thing for your patient as opposed to the thing that you think might gain you the least criticism. And specifically, I talked about awake intubations that. I hear a lot of people preach awake intubations in circumstances where I don't think it's indicated that's a difference in practice, but it's also a little bit a difference in attitude because we have a lot of really good airway equipment today, other than Intubating people awake, and patients have told me personally about prior awake intubations that they described as torture. And in one memorable instance, uh, it was described as like being waterboarded. Oh gosh. So <laughs> these are not pleasant experiences for people. And, and they can be made more or less pleasant depending on how you handle them. So after that article appeared, I got an email from one of my own residents um, who was brand new, who I'd never even worked with. And he described a situation in which he and his attending, who happened to be Dr. Dan Cole, who's uh, a past president of the ASA and a really wonderful anesthesiologist and human being, but that they had a patient who'd had a previous awake intubation who had a difficult airway, but did not want another awake intubation, just not having it. <laughs> and, and he described the lengths that Dr. Cole and went to in, you know, working with that patient and handling his airway safely, but still making sure that the patient was comfortable and sedated, and I don't know exactly what happened, but the the resident described that care as one of the most meaningful things he'd seen in anesthesiology so far. And so that, you know, time and attention, both on the part of the faculty member and the appreciation of it on the part of the very junior resident is exactly what gives me hope. And it doesn't have anything to do with the money or getting paid or, you know, at that day, that time, no matter what they did, they were going to get paid the same. So the time and care that went into that was from the heart. And that is, that is what, that is what really matters. At the end of the day, you're a physician who's promised to take care of the patient and not doing it According to a protocol, and not doing it according to the way that you think might get paid the most. I mean, people who think that we're taking care of COVID patients because of the money—you know—they're just insane. I don't even know where, I don't know where to where to go with that. But that is what has to give you hope. And our, to their credit, our colleagues in pediatrics, who are among the lowest paid of the specialists, that's what they do. And we need to worry more about their example than, you know, the highest paid specialties as i've said before if you went into this for the money that was the wrong reason in the first place and do i want a two-thirds pay cut no thank you i don't but i do think there is going to be a market correction that is probably um inevitable so you might as well plan for it rather than worry about it and then hope that our advocates at from the asa and elsewhere can do the best they can to try to just make the playing field more level. You know, there's no reason why one specialty should get 80% of usual and customary and us get 30%. So if we could just level that playing field, that would go a long way. But it's still a fascinating field. It's an honor to take care of patients. It's an honor to walk up to the bedside of somebody you've never met and have them put their life in your hands. How can you, how can you put a how can you say anything except thank you it's my pleasure
0: yeah sounds utterly humbling something I don't know anything about but I enjoy being able to witness from you and hearing my wife's stories obviously so Dr. Cyber, thank you for your time thank you for the work that you do both in the hospital and outside and um, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to APMSuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.